Hello there, and welcome to Thatch and Earth, your guide to conservation-focused travel. I'm Lawrence, and I am Phoebe, and today we're chatting to Dex Kutsia. Yes, we are. Dex is a fascinating guy. He is first and foremost an entrepreneur, but he is also an extremely passionate conservationist. He's involved in a whole range of areas in conservation, but has focused specifically on rhino conservation, and is actually the director of the original Rhino Orphanage. I'm really excited to get into this chat with him. So, without further ado. Hi, Phoebe and Lawrence. Yes, yeah. Um, thanks for the opportunity to, to chat to your audience. Um, I've been in business. I've been a sort of entrepreneurial businessman for, for the last uh, 35 years of my life and um, an avid wildlife, amateur wildlife photographer for a, as a passion. So over the years, um, and especially post-2010, um, you know, when the onslaught started in about 2008 on rhino poaching in South Africa and other parts of Africa, but specifically in South Africa, I took an opportunity to educate people, especially the youth, um, and on an international level to make a difference going forward for future generations so that we don't lose these iconic species such as elephants, rhinos, pangolin. Um, and I conceptualize, I'm a, I'm a member of, of an international organization of about 28,000 CEOs called Young Presidents Organization, YPO. And we have the facility where members offer internships to other members, and it's a global organization, to their children that are over the age of 18 up to age of 30. So since 2012, I offered a internship where these youngsters would utilize camera equipment that I provided with them and work at the Rhino Orphanage where I'm a director of, of the first ever, the first Rhino Orphanage, there's quite a few now, but the first one in Africa called the Rhino Orphanage. I've been a director there for a number of years. And in 2012, I started supporting the Rhino Orphanage, and we created documentaries on the plight of Rhino to create awareness on a social media platform, whether it's YouTube, Facebook, and especially with the youth, and to, to work specifically at demand reduction of Rhino horn and ivory per se, you know, in, in Asia, because that's where the demand is. And, um, you know, there's a... There's a NGO called um, Wild Day that's got a very good saying, when the buying stops, the killing can too. So during, since then, I've had about 75 students through the program on an annual basis, and it, it essentially became a, a non-profit organization, and we've got a young South African who's now 32 called Fortunate Parker, who um, I think we mentioned it before that he would be a great person also for your podcast. He is um, from a poor disadvantaged community in South Africa and we started supporting him. He was a, I managed to get him an internship sponsored back in 2014 when he was in his first year of BSc studies. And since then he became a project leader and he's actually a director of the NGO and he's in the last sort of two trimesters of his PhD studying frogs. Uh, and amphibians, and he's he's literally also co-authored his main author of a book on KwaZulu Natal frogs, and that was in both English and Isizulu um, first ever. So he's he's done very well. COVID has um, 
delayed his his completion of his studies, but by next year he would have he would have his PhD. So that's a good thing, and that's helped through to fundraising. So we've raised funds for you know stop poaching, uh, stop rhino poaching. We raised about half a million rand for them in 2014. Uh, through business efforts, and we assisted Youth for African Wildlife as the NGO. Uh, this internship program became an NGO called Youth for African Wildlife, a non-profit company, and we assisted in translocation with financially uh, with the translocation of eight rhinos to Botswana from South Africa, and we sponsored dogs, um, sniffer dogs, and yeah, community rural community. Uh, education and, and those type of things. But um, unfortunately, this year's program was deferred to next year. So that's on the one end uh, that we that, that I've had quite, quite involvement with the youth. I, I believe that the youth, and especially with how it's developing in the digital world, um, you know, there's some other youngsters, that's ex-South Africans that's in the UK that um, I've also assisted where I can with networks and contacts where they developing an app and a digital platform to help communities to preserve wildlife in, in Africa, but where there's financial benefit for the poor rural communities um, per se. So that's where that's where I think conservation has to change around because we've just lost too much over the last few few centuries. You know, it's not stopping. Um, in the early part of COVID. In South Africa, the rhino poaching went down, but in the last five weeks, it's picked up again um, because of the lockdown rules that became less stringent, so people could travel a little, a little bit more. And ultimately, I mean, you know, there's still this whole research that will come out. Where did COVID start? Was it in these wet markets, wildlife wet markets in in, in China? And, you know, what's going to go? What's, how are we going to move forward? to preserve wildlife. There's just too many people on the planet at seven and a half billion, you know, in in um, in less than 30 years, the human population is going to, in Africa is going to double from the 1.3 to about 2.4 billion. And by the end of the century, Africa will have 4.2 billion people. You know, that that is an enormous amount of people and if you take a look at habitat preservation and the wildlife, we've already lost so much. And there's the conflict. You know, the human-wildlife conflict is a big, big issue um, in, in rural communities in Africa because people plant crops. And, you know, I also have supported great NGOs like Dr. Michelle Henley's Elephants Alive. That's an offshoot of Save the Elephants from Dr. Ian Douglas Hamilton in Kenya. But locally... We um, have supported with conservation participation where I managed to do pro bono work as a YPO member and we got international guests to participate and through the participation funding of elephant collars that lost about four years with GPS tracking devices where they can monitor their movements and their paths where they walk, you know, in their corridors to do research and have the scientific data available for future generations where human wildlife can be avoided because elephants, as we know, and lions, as we know, um, do go into areas, whether it's in Botswana or Namibia or Kenya or South Africa or Tanzania, where they do 
cause damage to people's crops and, you know, people get killed as well. So, for instance, Save the, Elef- um, Save the Elephants and Elephants and I have a, a project called Elephants, Bees and Trees. And I myself live in the greater Kruger on the Olifants River and I can see the decimation of trees, iconic trees, done by, by elephants. Um, but, you know, habitats do recover and they do come back and these are apex species, but you... There's ways to combat it. I personally have, for instance, water tanks um, that fall from my borehole that have been damaged by the elephants twice, and we just put a lot of rocks that we picked up in the area for a couple of meters on each side of the elephant of the water tanks, and for nearly two years I've had no damage. As as such, with trees, there's also bee the bee project which harvests honey for the local communities. But around iconic trees like your marula trees and knob thorns, uh, you can hang these these bee boxes that attract the bees, and the bee the, the honey gets harvested for the benefit of the local communities, and simultaneously it protects the trees. So there's there's quite a lot that can get done, and that that is being done. Um, but by the same token, our biggest problem is not necessarily the human-wildlife conflict with the locals and, and the animals. It's more the demand for rhino horn and ivory in Asia. Definitely. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I think that, that you've, you've nailed it in that, you know, we can do so much in Africa. We can, we can focus it in Southern Africa. But if the demand doesn't disappear in Southeast Asia, sort of Vietnam, China, China specifically, then that, that the work that we're doing in Southern Africa is essentially sort of futile. What would be your sort of main, um, if, if you could do one thing to sort of change this demand in Southeast Asia specifically, what, what would you do? What would you think is the best route to change the demand? Uh, that's a difficult one in terms of with the, with the culture there that you have to look at. First of all, before you can address that, you have to look at the exponential growth that China has experienced in the last 30, 45 years. China used to be a third world country where people would live on a dollar a day, the bulk of the population. I'm talking about 40, 50 years ago. And it's just over the last four decades, China has just become such a superpower in terms of manufacturing inexpensively and exporting. So, Gone are the days where things were made in China and they didn't last. They do last. Look at iPhones. They are assembled in China. Um, 1.4 billion people today, and out of that, you've got about 18,000 ultra-high net worth people. It's worth over $30 million each, and some are <laughs> quite a bit, bit higher than that. Um, then you have your affluent population that's in the region of about 280 million people. Your middle class is over 500 million people. So by 2030, 1 billion of 1.4 billion people will be urbanized. Um, So you've got your different cities there. So the wealth that's being created, not only there, in Vietnam and Thailand and other consuming countries at the same time, um, you know, COVID has has dented it a bit. the world economy, but China's already rebounding. And so so they did also after 2009. So as long as you've got wealth, you've got to, the way I look at it is China is today where America was in the 60s, where everybody wants to buy luxury goods, whether it's the luxury goods, I've, I've been you know, in business in luxury goods for, for over two decades. 
um, whether it's a Louis Vuitton brand or a Gucci brand or Ivory, which is a luxury goods product because of its price and its scarcity um, and, and the fact that it's pretty much, you know, both Barack Obama, President Barack Obama and President Xi Jinping banned Ivory trade um, some four years ago. You know, it was a near total ban on the Ivory trade. Um, and But still, people see it as a luxury goods product. So you still have tiger farming taking place in, in China. Uh, you still have bebal farming taking place. Pangolin is, is, I mean, in the last six years, I think I've read reports of confiscations of pangolins uh, frozen and the scales running into well over 40 tons or 50 tons of pangolin. And a pangolin weighs less than eight kilos or nine kilos. So, you know, they're getting out from, from middle Africa and they're going out there. So that, there's got to be a mind shift. And how do you do that mind shift with so much wealth where people want to buy what they couldn't buy before? And hence my belief system to answer your question there, sorry, it's a long-winded way around it, but you have to go and educate the youth. Um, so the youth in, in China today will be less prone to want to use rhino horn than somebody that's 50 years of age. I think a 25-year-old Chinese or, or, or Vietnamese will not be that keen to buy these products, especially if there's a stigma attached to it. And the only way you can create that stigma is the NGOs of the world and the youth of the world and with social media can get the message out there to people that, um, you know, it's a no-no, that you must not trade in that. But it's a mind shift. Look at Japan with their Hanko stamps that's made out of ivory. You know, 40 years ago, they didn't make Hanko stamps because you need a Hanko stamp for to open up a bank account. That's uh, the way the, the Chinese, uh, the Japanese business works. You need a Hanko stamp. These Hanko stamps are now made out of, out of ivory. So and one's also got to look at it, you know, a lot of the pro trade people, whether it's rhino horn or ivory, are saying if you take a look in two in in nineteen seventy nine there were um X amount of elephants in Africa. It, it was around about one point three million. And then in nineteen eighty nine it had dropped to about six hundred thousand. Massive amount of of elephants that got killed for the ivory. Then CITES, the Convention on International Trade of Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora, banned ivory trade in 1989. And sadly, they did a, what they called a, a once-off sale in 1999 to Japan. And roughly the four countries that participated in the sale were South Africa, Botswana, Zimbabwe, and Namibia. And between all of them, they received, if I recall correctly, 150 per kilogram. It was sold for about $154 a kilo, the ivory. And I think Namibia got something like $700,000. South Africa and Botswana, each in the region of seven, eight million dollars. And Zimbabwe was about two or three million dollars, probably the exact stats, but it wasn't a huge amount of money. Um, call it 15, 16 million dollars that it yielded. CITES has got no record of any of those countries where they could prove that the money went back into conservation. And as we know, the, no, there's, no, there's no documentary evidence of that money going into, into conservation. And 
10, not even 10 years later, in 2008, CITES decided to do again what they call the once-off sale. They had a once-off sale. Why they called it another once-off sale? I don't know. It was a second once-off sale. And this time, <laughs> China um, participated in the auction. So China also purchased, and so did Japan. And once again, it wasn't a huge, huge, huge amount of money that, that – um, was sold from the stockpiles of those countries, but it created a parallel market. Now you have the legal and the illegal market, and at customs, you can't do the DNA and the testing to see whether ivory is is legal or illegal. Was it bought out of the stock, the legal sale, or was it not? And and that 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 was a big big problem. So they started trading it in China, and it led to a massive, massive decimation. I mean, you know, we lost a hundred elephants. A day um, over the last twelve years, it might, might have gone down now, but we lost a whole lot of elephants. The loo in Tanzania lost a huge amount. Mozambique lost 70 percent of their elephants, um, and it went down from twenty thousand to about seven thousand. And Kenya, luckily, now is on the rise again. But the whole purpose is what you've got to look at: why do people want ivory? The trinkets and the Ivory Kobe at one stage, there were 137 retail outlets um, in China and something like 38 carving factories. So that's the, that's the effect that the demand has. And I think through youth education, uh, we all know that children have a huge influence on parents and grandparents. They do. And, you know, it's, if... We were talking about health supplements earlier before before the podcast, but if you've got a staunch 60-year-old or 50-year-old that just believe in their normal diet, you can say to them, but, you know, if you use more omega-3, you can balance out between omega-3 and omega-6, and you can prove it, and it's a youngster in their 20s or 30s that will come, the change will happen. Um, and the youth can certainly, when I say the youth, I'm not talking about, I mean, 15-year-olds only, they also have a voice. Look at what great work Greta Thunberg's been doing against climate change. She's, she's you know, created huge awareness globally um, against climate change. And it's the youth, the voices of the youth need to be taken into consideration when it comes to the wildlife. 100%, Dex. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and the other thing that's very interesting to touch on, I mean, obviously there's quite a lot to unbox from what you've been saying, but education is obviously one of the most f fundamental aspects to change the way people perceive the natural world. And, I mean, th that message is not something that's newly been spread. I mean, you go look at even how Attenborough is punting his new, his new um, documentary and, you know, even at Thatch and Earth, the, the, the main thing that we focus on is education. And it, it's quite a curious concept to, to really unbox because everybody talks about it, but it's, it's not very often that you see people at the forefront of that certain area or that field and being able to showcase that is is quite difficult like you were saying it's it's also quite a a long-term approach it doesn't just happen overnight it's not going to bring instant rewards so you know you got to put quite a bit of time and effort in and hope that in the end it will make a difference it's like kind of watching a tree grow you got to plant it and you've got to wait 20 years before something uh, massive or fundamental shifts will happen and you know, just seeing how passionate you are about the whole conservation industry as a whole, I mean, you are, in terms of a contributor, a contributor far greater than what Phoebe and I have done so far. And we kind of 
can idolize and utilize that as, as a way of going forward for us as a bit of motivation. But I mean, if you had to educate people, are there particular methods or fields that you would like to focus on particularly? Like I know that you are working with the youth quite quite closely. Is there a particular program that you use for the youth to help them be a little bit more educated? Um, look, we, we, we use film and, and uh, still, still as well as film um, as a medium. Nowadays, with cell phones, I mean, you actually don't need these expensive cameras. A, a normal iPhone uh, takes the most amazing film and shoots, and you've got the apps to enhance the the, the sound effects and and so forth as well. So you've got those as a as a medium. But you know, take a look at I mentioned Greta Thunberg and and the global climate change strikes that took place in several cities where there were hundreds of thousands of people. Some, some, some years ago, we were a grassroots movement that still exists. I'm not too much, I'm not really involved with it anymore, but I was the lead strategist for the Global March for Elephants and Rhinos 2014 to 2016. And we hosted a global march, you know, in aid of wildlife, especially rhinos, lions and elephants, conservation to, to get the demand reduction down. And each year we were in roughly 140 cities globally um, and it's reached through multimedia efforts that we've put together, um, exposure. We reach in the region of 500 million people, half a billion people every year, purely through a group of around about 22 core strategists and about 140 people globally to put a strategy together to... In, in fact, yesterday was World Animal Day. It was always on the 4th of October because uh, yesterday was 4th of October is, is World Animal Day. So we always hosted it on World Animal Day on the 4th of October if we, if we could or that sort of Sunday. And it's, I believe it had an impact on China and America's decisions to ban ivory trade. Uh, I really do because it also culminated in many cities, Brussels, uh, European cities, Denver, Colorado, many, many cities destroyed and burnt their ivory stockpiles that were, you know, from con that were confiscated per, per se. But um, and it did raise the bar. Sadly, I think that the NGO is still, still there, but uh, there hasn't been great marches. But you can do it for so long or you can continue doing it. One's just got to have that energy because it's pro bono work, you know, it's uh, volunteer work that one does. But let's take a look at South Africa's um, situation prior to 1994 when apartheid was still here. There was a 24-7 demonstration outside on Trafalgar Square at South African House for a number of years where volunteers would would vocalize their opposition to apartheid for a number of years. And that raised the awareness. You know, it was 24-7. It wasn't for six months. It was for a number of years where volunteers would just hang around with placards in front of the SA embassy. Um, that type of pressure was one bit of pressure that worked. Sanctions worked as well. Um, but, yeah, the more awareness it can get, get, you know, with all the platforms that we've got, you know, you guys are, are much younger than me, and it's up to people like you that get into the passion, that in, enjoy the bush, the wildlife, that have experienced it. Best way to get people 
to concern themselves is to actually experience it. And this is where Africa has got a big problem in that so many of, I mean, the, the rangers and the anti-poaching people, yeah, they, they experience the wildlife, but you've got communities next to Greater Kruger where the kids are a couple of kilometers away from rhino or lion or elephants, but they don't see them. They literally don't see them. And, you know, that's where there's another great uh, NGO that Mike Kendrick runs called Wild Shots, and they won some Kudu Awards with um, Sandbox's annual award system, but Mike's got a, a way that he gets second-hand cameras donated and he's funded some himself, and he takes kids from poorer rural communities and they get to know how to do photography, um, and he takes them into some of the lodges where they put aside time, I and mean, they're not fully booked and all that, and the kids can go in and experience game drives and take photographs. And that's how you create the youth, uh, especially in, in communities. Like Fortunate, who is going to be, you know, I always nickname him Dr. P. He's, he's nearly finished with his uh, thing. He's, he's actually also qualified in filmmaking and editing at the same time. And um, which is which is phenomenal, yeah. So if you can educate and get them to participate, uh, that's a different 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 thing. Everybody can do their part. We we flew in. You mentioned. I mean, you know, I've been flying helicopters for fifteen years. I don't really fly much at the moment, and have not for a while. But um, we we did a, a thing with black two black schools in the northern parts next to Kruger where we did some conservation education with film, showing people film. And we, we did a whole thing there with, with, with the children. And they were ecstatic because we landed with a helicopter in the you know, dirt like we feel. And we did a whole thing with the teachers and some of the parents were there and showed them a film. And when I asked the kids, because they all spoke English, most of them, um, and I asked them because they took photos of the helicopter and, you know, I just wanted to put selfies. Unfortunate was with me, and he shared some some contacts there and befriended some of the the youngsters. But when we asked him how many of them were on social media, the ones with the phones, everybody put their hands up. Every single one put their hands up up there on Facebook. Now that is where it's a medium that you could educate them also through through social media platforms where they can like certain NGOs as pages or groups and that. So it's a different dynamic, you know. How old is Facebook now? Ten years? Yeah, it's, it's still really young. And it's actually a really nice perspective because especially in the last few months, there's been a lot of social media bashing, essentially. A lot of people are going off it. And we've even seen with that, you know, like it can be used as a tool for, for positive change. It's not the hugely negative thing, the addictive Absolutely. platforms that everyone thinks they are. And if you can just direct the attention that you've got to the, the right kind of NGOs, the educational platforms, use it as a tool for education rather than just a tool for, look at this selfie that I took, then I, I, I think we're, we're, on, we're on to something good. Well, if you take the amount of cell phones, how many people buy a new cell phone once a year, sometimes more? Um, and then what happens to the old cell phones? But those old cell phones, you know, uh, I've read reports, it's not good to actually get a new cell phone, smartphone every year because there's an, you know, a lot of scarce natural minerals that is used in some of, of the technology of cell phones. So, you know, I try and keep a cell phone as long as I can. Uh, the trick is when you do photography and the camera improves, then you think, well, I must get that, that, that it's a better camera, you know. Um, but 
all these cell phones and these kids in the rural communities, they can't always afford smartphones and, and that. But um, I've been assisting in, in guiding and giving advice to a new startup uh, company that is specifically using an app on a cell phone with rural communities where they can, they can score points um, and get financial benefit in terms of conserving endangered wildlife. And, and so on. I, I'm familiar with, with the project in Botswana where lions that are collared, the NGO that, that runs it out of um, America, they can ch check on the GPS collars when the lions are getting close to the community and then they pre-warn them um, that the lions are close, you know, just to protect them from their goats, their animals, and obviously human, wild, human, human life at the same time. Um, yeah, 100%. And you know, the interesting thing about those certain um, aspects and applications are is there's quite a few people in the conservation industry are doing it, not just necessarily on terrestrial-based stuff. Um, we chatted to a, a group down in Cape Town. Uh, they head up a company called Cape Rad. And in that, in that conversation we had with them, they were talking about uh, uh, iNaturalist, which is basically an application where you can take a photo of something, send it in, and then somebody will help you either identify it or, you know, you can give information about that particular sighting that you had. And that actually formulates a scientific database. So not only can you learn about certain aspects of, you know, the natural wilderness or the natural landscape around you, you can also contribute back to the scientific field so much so that they took took the idea and kind of created their own version of it to help, uh, particularly when it comes to spotting sharks. So, you know, we could maybe even lend that idea into into the terrestrial-based um, conservation efforts Absolutely. that we're doing. You know, kind of like latest Kruger sightings, except now you're contributing to a scientific database. Yes. You know, the, As soon as you start switching to that educational point of view as well as contributing back to the ecosystem, you can make amazing changes. And it's really encouraging to hear somebody like yourself, you know, basically at the forefront for the last, what, 20, maybe even more years working on this sort, sort, of, this sort of field. But one of the questions I have to ask you is, uh, you were saying that it comes down to people experiencing the natural wilderness around them in order for them to, you know, really effectively conserve it. Is, if, if that's the case, how would you suggest somebody experience the natural wilderness around them? Well, I mean, you're, I think sometimes you've got to take time out and put the cell phone down and, and the instruments and just look around you and observe and, and have a look at that. Certainly travel helps, you know, but in COVID, travel has come to a standstill and that doesn't help uh, much either. But as you mentioned, I mean, you mentioned Attenborough earlier. Um, I think he had a record when he opened up an Instagram account. He had one tweet, and I think within a few hours, he had over a million followers. Um, but his his films and and the films that they've created over the years are mind-boggling. The photography is just absolutely brilliant. So one one can witness things by watching these videos at the same time. Um, these films and, and documentaries and have a look at it. But it's also research. You know, a lot of people don't necessarily, unless you, I mean, you guys are interested in this field, but another youngster that's your age, it's interested in becoming a, or being a stockbroker in London or New York. They're not necessarily interested in that, but give the guy the opportunity where he gets married and he wants to go on honeymoon and he decides he's going to the Mass Mara for his honeymoon. 
you know, then you can change his, his, his mind around. People have to, to experience them. There's an old, old saying, once you've been to Africa, you can never get Africa out of you. And, and I think it was Will Smith, the actor, that said when God created, his saying was when God created the world, he, his home was Africa, something like that, you know. So there's just so many vast, nice areas from Ethiopia to Kenya to Tanzania to, to Southern Africa where one can, can experience these things, but it does cost money to travel. We know that. Um, but it doesn't always have to cost that type of money. I'll give you an example. You know, your, your lodges in the tourism, let's talk about tourism a bit, you've got some really, really upmarket safari lodges and brands of safari lodges in areas like in Kenya, Tanzania, the Salu, you know, the Serengeti, you've got it in Masai Mara, Botswana, the Akabanga Delta. Those places are unaffordable for most people. You can pay anything from $800 to $2,500 per night per person. It's expensive. Great experience if you can afford it. Phenomenal. You're going to have the best sightings and all of the rest that you can, can do. But the national parks around the world, the same in America and Africa, Greater Kruger, you can travel there and you can still go and stay in the accommodation that's coming in at $15 a night and you take your own food. I was in Ghana Reserve with friends last year in Zimbabwe and we, we traveled by car, but you can get lodging and you do your own. They've got fridges there, you just take your own food, you do a lodging over overnight and all that, I think you pay about $10, $10 a person, not even, per, per night, which is inexpensive. So there are still the opportunities to get to places, but what we might see on television is film at great locations. So if you want to go to the Mara, you don't have to go to these top lodges. You can stay outside of the Masai Mara and just pay the conservation levy that, that takes you in. Um, and you can drive around in the Masai Mara, you don't have to stay at the lodge, and then you just exit and you pay for your permits. So how do you entice more people? I mean, if you take your own circle of friends, and you guys are in the UK, how many of your friends are passionate to, to, to go and experience the bush? Not as many as I would like, I must say. I think, I, but I, I, think, I think you're right. I think... It's an exposure thing. Like you say, once you go to Africa, it will never leave you. And I am definitely a case in point of that in that I went in 2014 for the first time and literally have not left, aside from obviously now we got stuck here in the UK with COVID, have not left Southern Africa because I love it. And I actually feel like there's, there's, that's where I feel more at home than in the UK. And I, th I think we're really hitting on a point here that people need to experience it. They don't need to pay for these crazy lodges. And really that's what Thatch and Earth is doing. We're trying to highlight the places that are actually, um, you know, that they're not necessarily the most expensive or the, the craziest or the most luxurious, but they are the places that are contributing to conservation where your money goes to more than your bed and board in that your money actually pays for something bigger than tourism. It actually means that the, the tourism is funding a, a bigger project. It's part of the whole tourism program. So clearly, you know, the lodge where you pay $2,000 or $1,200 per night, they do employ a lot of people. They employ five or six local community for every guest that stays. 
So there is the employment. And, and as we know, I mean, we've seen figures now with COVID because one of my, you know, my passion is my business with a partner that, that is my main business is called Safari Giants. And we are operating for the international market on, on higher end luxury safaris, but not naturally always luxury safaris. There's also some conservation safaris where we participate and experience what, what you know, the science behind conservation and what needs to, to be done beyond that. So my main business is dealing with my partner, Annie, and Safari Giants is the incoming tour business. But we've seen now that the billions that have lost, that Africa has lost in, in tourism, and luckily, you know, people are deferring. Travel will come back. We, you know, it's going to be affected like it was with 9-11 20, nearly 20 years ago. Travel was affected and travel was also affected with Ebola and with the SARS virus and, and it, it, it comes back, you know. So it, it certainly does come back. But the cheaper accommodations, those, those are definitely so, so affordable and available to, to people. One of my ex-interns, Kate Oshman, who's from the UK, uh, United States, she did the internship program in 2014. She fell so in love with Africa. Two years later, she did the Fergaza Level 1 course. Then she came back and she was the project leader last year for Youth African Wildlife when we went into, into Kruger and at worked at the Rhino Orphanage as well. And she managed to get a three-year visa in March this year, she was coming out to come and stay in a bush for three years. But then COVID happened. And guess what she's doing now? She's promoting on her social media platform. She's been for four months now in areas in and out of Yellowstone in America. And she's just been to Alaska as well. So she's using photography and her medium and writing skills to to passionately she wants to be in Africa at the moment but while she's not able to travel she's just gone in and done on the bison and the and the bears the black you know the brown bears the and gone to Alaska and and she's creating awareness in her own way so everybody that you know what you guys are doing what I do what Mike Kennedy does what elephants alive do you know but everybody adds a voice and it's really adding that voice to the voiceless Hundred percent. And just to touch on touch on that topic as well, you know, I think we all view COVID as this, you know, this this incredibly overburdening, almost negative thing that's happened to us. And in a lot of retrospect, it's very true. And you know, I'm not taking away from the fact that there there are people out there who've been severely impacted by this, including ourselves. But there is a bit of a blessing in all of this, and that's for us at least, it's taught us to value nature even in areas where you wouldn't necessarily think you would find it you know it 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 starts with that passion before anything else and that if you have a little bit of an underlying passion or if you're even at least willing to try things will open up to you and it's been it's been really encouraging to chat to you about it too because it kind of ignites that passion a little bit more it furthers our drive and our cause to carry on doing these sorts of things because at the end of the day we are only but custodians to the nature or the natural world around us. And we can only showcase what it's willing to show us. And the more you know, obviously, the more you can tell. And it's also one of the things that we believe in particularly is that, you know, it's not about going to the, the massive lodges, the big five, uh, big five lodges, the places where you can get white glove service. 
Sometimes it is just about being in a tent and getting your feet dirty oh, on the ground God. and just really truly Absolutely. connecting. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, I mean, just like how many people do you know have, have actually planted a tree in their lives, never mind in the last 12 months? Precisely. And, you know, it's something that Phoebe and I have taken on board with us is because we do a bit of traveling, you know, we can't we can't be people who say something and not practice what we preach. So the, one of the, the recent developments is, is that when we travel, we try to be carbon, carbon neutral, at least to the point where we plant a tree after each flight. That's Phoebe's main idea is for every time she takes a trip, we're giving back at least to something because you've no, got to practice what you preach at the end of the day. does the same. We, for every climb that we get, we, we plant a tree. And uh, not ourselves. We support an NGO that does the tree planting. And, and that I coincidentally managed to, I was lucky where I am. I, the, there's a guy that had a whole bunch of baobab trees, and I love baobab trees, and that they were unfortunately planted some 30 years ago below the power lines, and the uh, Eskom utility wanted to cut them down. So I managed to, to secure three nice five and a half, six meter trees, and they transplanted very well. And I managed to get one. A friend also bought one. So Love it. You know, I've planted many, many trees in my life. Then in White River, where I used to live in the farm, we rehabilitated um, alien blue gum trees that we removed. We planted about 300, and we removed 300 odd thousand blue gum trees that saves 38 million liters of water a day because those trees suck up a hell of a lot of water. We planted out, out we myself and staff, and we propagated and planted about uh, 10, 12,000 trees. But you know, on trees, talking about that, I'm very passionate with, with trees as well. And I see Ethiopia has done that. But some four years ago, a friend of mine that runs a Tavo Trust, uh, Richard Moller, because there was a drought and I had some amazing, amazing days there with the big tuskers. You know, there's only 25 big tuskers left in the world. A tusker, a big tuskers quantifiable as each tusk weighing 100 pounds or more. So even if an elephant's only got 100 pounds, Tusk and the other one's broken off. It's still classified. There's only 25 of them that's uh, left in the world. But there are some emerging tuskers that are protected, but they had a huge, huge drought. And I also want to do this in, in our area and just use my own property as a test where you can buy indigenous tree seeds from people that sell them by the thousands. It's local, it's local employment. You know, the poor communities get to work. And then after heavy rains to, to drop them from small aircraft in areas. Ethiopia has done that. Um, I read, I can't remember how many million seeds, it was a huge amount that they tested to to rehabilitate, um, you know, combat desertification, and, and that's important. Oh, so other, those, are, those, are, those are other nice projects that young people can assist with. And raise the bar and and get to an area and say you know what there's been some damage here let's 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 plant a million trees how do we plant a million trees well let's test it and let's see what the germination rate is with iconic trees seeds from iconic trees and and plant those out yeah you you know if you can get a 20 percent success rate germination and survival rate it's planting trees it's helping the carbon footprint against the carbon yeah. 
Yeah, amazing. I feel like we have so much to speak about, so we'll have to do a sequel because I'm very aware we don't want to take up too much of your time. And I feel like we've only just just like scraped the surface of the the topics we could get into. I'm still thinking about like rhino train, CITES and everything that we need to talk about more. No, we will. I, I mean, from my side, you know, I've been in business and for many years and not all conservationists are business minded and, and not all business people are conservation minded. But if you can merge the two and you can take business expertise and merge it with conservation, you get a better, you get a, you get a, you get a better result, you know, with, yeah, working definitely. on a win-win, which can be a win-win financially yeah. for the animals, financially for the people, for the environment. That's what we need to work at. Yeah, and I feel like like we've said before, that's what conservation is missing. Like I am a I'm a conservation scientist, and we've got enough scientists. We need business people. We need marketers. We need social media coordinators. We need that kind of economic expertise to come in now to help promote all the science that we're producing the science is amazing i, I could talk about that for that's days but yeah. until we can spread the message that's where exactly. it's failing. i think if you take the iucn's red list of um the, the scientists that contribute to the red list of species with the iucn i can't remember if it was 17 or 27 thousand scientists that contribute you, you, you'll know better than I do. So there's, you're right, there's a lot of science, scientists out there. Um, but, yeah, it's been great, been great chatting yeah. with you guys, and thanks for having me on. on likewise, on. likewise. And, you know, Dex, we, we are, we're very excited to have a little bit more of a chat with you, particularly about safari giants. So in the follow-up, we, we, we would like to pick your brain a bit more about what safari giants is and what you're up to. But uh, as Phoebe says, we don't want to keep you for too long. Also, just on a side note, absolutely been loving the fact that I can hear a prunier and a golden-tailed woodpecker and a whole bunch of other things in the background. It's made my day. <laughs> okay, so, so you, um, you, again, you, thank you oh, very thank much you. for I'm your so time. Glad. Yeah, next time, what, we'll, what I'll do <laughs> next time, I'll use my laptop, not my, my iMac, and then I'll make sure that I sit outside. Oh, that would oh, be beautiful. Love that. <laughs> that's, that's what we should have done today, but let's do that because I'd love to, to, to do you know a follow-up with you, we can maybe if you wanted to chat, Phoebe, about the trade uh, issue, the trade debacle, mm. and you know, which is definitely um, splits conservation community in South Africa quite a bit. Um, we could chat about that, and that's yeah. a, <laughs> for that you can spend many hours. But I'll make sure I'll exactly. make sure I sit outside with the laptop. <laughs> Perfect. Amazing. Cool. Well, we will schedule a time so we can chat to you more about our various topics that we're super passionate about. But thank you so much for this. Like, it's really just sort of sparked a load more conversations that we definitely need to get Fantastic. into. Fantastic. Thank you, guys. And look after yourselves on, on, on that side and stay safe. Thanks again, Dex, and you too. I mean, wow, what an amazing conversation. Fantastic. He just has so much experience. And I just think his knowledge and his background in entrepreneurship and economics and business is so valuable for the field of conservation. I couldn't agree more. I mean, having somebody like him on this show is just unbelievable. You know, we chat to so many people who really understand the conservation industry, but don't necessarily focus on the entrepreneurial economic side of things. And to have somebody who can do both is unbelievably important. And those are the kinds of individuals that we need the most at this moment in time. 
super special and I cannot wait for our forthcoming chats with him. I feel like this is going to go on for a while. I feel like we've only just hit the tip of the iceberg with him. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm super excited to see what the next conversation has in store for us. Um, so without further ado, I'm Lawrence. And I'm Phoebe. Bye. Bye.